Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Alpha Chat went on the road this week. We were in Princeton to speak with Angus Deaton, the winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize, which was announced just a few weeks ago. And in the first half of the show, we play a few clips from that conversation where we talk about his early influences, his thoughts on the poverty trap, and his writings on the contentious debate about foreign aid. If you want to listen to the entire conversation, you can find it on Alpha Chatterbox, our long-form-only economics podcast, and we certainly recommend that you do. But in the second half of today's show, we're talking about the rush of activity in the pharma sector with the FT's David Crow, specifically the possible tie-up between Allergan and Pfizer, and the really spectacular controversy surrounding Valiant. So stick around, and starting now is the interview with Angus Deaton. So first of all, Thanks for doing this so soon after the prize. It's a uh, pleasure. Really appreciate it. Uh, my first question is, is, how are you handling the flood of attention that's come washing <laughs> over you ever since? Mostly with enormous pleasure, actually. It's, really? Um, yeah. It's really nice to have an opportunity to talk to people I wouldn't have otherwise met. And I'm sure as anyone who ever gets an award like this will tell you, you hear from people you haven't heard from in 40 or 50 years. Right. And that's a real treat too. And those are the ones, those are the emails I'm answering. (laughs) A lot of the others, you know. A lot of the the, the ones from people coming out of the woodwork, you mean, that you haven't heard from. Yes. Because I think, oh my goodness, what are you doing, you know, and where have you been? Your your career spans across vast territory, both intellectual, but also more straightforwardly geographical territory as well. I mean, yeah. a lot of your studies have been based uh, in a lot of different developing countries. Mm-hmm. Did it go about how you expected when you started out, or did it take a lot of surprising twists and turns? That's a really good question. I, c- I could reimagine it and say that I had it all laid out when I start, you know, but that's that wouldn't really be true at all, or it certainly wasn't, it wouldn't be descriptive of what I felt like at the time. So, I mean, I stumbled into economics really by accident, and it took me quite a while before I realized that this was something I really wanted to do, and that came with understanding that, you know, I could do it, so that, you know, I could do things that people liked or something, and also it was giving me a lot of pleasure, and it seemed to tie into the sort of things I wanted to do, but it was entirely accidental. Well, how, how is it accidental? Well, I mean, I went to Cambridge, you know, I, in my high school which is, for your British readers, public school. Right. Um, the, um, I did a lot of math. I did mathematics as my main subjects. But that was really because it gave me a lot of time to do other things, like play rugby or play music or spend time with my friends or do all the sort of good things in life. And when I got to Cambridge, I discovered that mathematics is a lot more serious um, than that. And having good time with all my friends, which is what I did for the first two years, actually got in the way <laughs> of getting decent grades in mathematics. So it became clear at the end of my second year at Cambridge that um, mathematics and I were long overdue for parting. And um, so I went to see my senior tutor, my tutor in my college, to try and decide what I was going to do. 
And he said, well, you could leave. That's perhaps the most obvious option. And I thought my dad, who'd struggled so hard in his life to get an education, would be devastated if I did that. So I said, okay, I think I'll stay one more year and try to get a degree. And then I said, well, what will I do? And he said, well, there's only one thing for people like you. It's called <laughs> economics. And I said, okay. It was called it economics. There's only one thing left for people who didn't want to do math and wanted to spend some weren't time very with good friends, at it. Right? Yeah. Um, and so actually I, I had a wonderful job that summer. I haven't thought of that for ages. I had a job. Um, there used to be a store, I think it's now a bookstore, um, called Simpsons of Piccadilly. Um, Simpsons of Piccadilly. Piccadilly. Yeah. And I think it's a Waterstones or a big bookstore just down for Piccadilly Circus on Piccadilly. And I got a summer job there selling clothes. But I wasn't doing it in the store. I was doing it on board the Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mary. And we went back and forward all summer yeah. um, from Southampton to New York, which is the first time I ever came to America. And um, they told me to buy a copy of Samuelson's text. Paul Samuelson. Yes, Paul Samuelson's text. And in between selling clothes and business was slow from time to time. Um, I would sit there with Samuelson's text open on the counter in front of me and read through it. And I thought it was terrific from day one. Sure. Paul Samuelson, one of the giants of 20th century century economics. But I mean, also, that was a terrific book. It still is. I'm sure it's been superseded by later textbooks. But it was just a wonderful, wonderful book. And it was sort of like, my goodness, I'm doing this sort of as a punishment, but it isn't punishment at all. It's it's terrific fun. What I would have guessed was that you were attracted to the potential real-world application of something like economics, whereas with mathematics... You might have been worried that it would stay in the realm of the theoretical, um, because that's been a big theme of your own career, which is sort of the the tension and the overlaps and the relationship between yep. theory and the real world and empirical work. I think that's right. I'm I'm not sure I felt that then, um, though it may well. I'm, I'm sure once again I could revisit the past and right. say, well, I was tired of the formal abstraction of mathematics. Um, the mathematics certainly stood me in very good stead because um, it helps and always has helped. Um, it's also true that I really like to write, and I discovered that in my the first year I spent studying economics. And Cambridge, after all, has the system where you write essays every week, and someone reads them and talks about them. And that, for me, turned out to be enormous pleasure, too. Okay. So the writing part of this has always been really important to me. But what you said about the abstraction, I think, is more... Later in, in my life, I've always worried that, but it's true throughout my career, I've always worried that academics sort of get into very, very narrow circles where they're chasing each other around on some very narrow topic. And they never ask the question as to whether that topic is of any general interest or right. not. Um, because there's lots of scientific meaning, you know, mathematical fun or whatever in solving the puzzles within this thing. And People don't always step back to find out whether that's really important. And, of course, that's often very hard to tell. You you know, some things that seem like they're not very important will turn out to be quite important. And I certainly always give myself a lot of slack in terms of if I thought something was intellectually interesting or something that smart people knew about and used, I would go and try to learn that. Like, I spent a long time learning time series analysis, sort of mid-career somewhere, just to find out what it was for. Sure. It's been very useful. At some point, you started studying this idea that there's a relationship between uh, how many calories people get, how much they're able to eat, and then how productive they are. Um, And there's a sort of longstanding idea that 
if people trapped in poverty can't get enough to eat, then they won't have the energy to do productive work, which means they can't make any money, which keeps them from eating more calories. Right? It's a trap. Okay, it's, it's called a, the poverty, the poverty trap. The poverty you trap. just described it right. perfectly. Uh, you found that actually it's not so simple that maybe the causal direction goes the other way. Um, can you sort of explain what your conclusions yeah, were I mean, in studying the, that? There's a lot, there was a lot of formal analysis in there, but the key point for us was that um, you could buy, and it's in one of the papers, so I may get this number wrong, so is that you could buy enough calories to get by in a day for about 5% of a day wage, even in the poorest parts of rural India. So it was just totally implausible that people were trapped in that trap. Because it's sort of like, you know, if you can get out of that trap, then everything's sort of okay. So if you had an, what you do, someone who was in that trap would be spend every single rupee you had on the cheapest possible calories until you're well enough nourished to look after your family and get a job and things. Because then you're out of the trap, Mm -hmm. right? So it has to be true for people to be locked into that trap that enough calories to get you out of the trap um, are expensive, are more expensive than you can spend by working incredibly hard for a few days to the point where you get out of it. And so we just find, and we just didn't really see any evidence of that in there. Um, but it's very complicated. And in more recent work, I mean, there's this paradox, which they actually didn't cite in the prize. So maybe you want to not talk about this. Okay. Is that, you know, there's been all this very rapid growth in India, but calorie per capita consumption is going down, even though half of all children in India are, are malnourished. And for us, that's, you know, one of the, that's the sort of paradox I love. I mean, it's tremendously important because here's all this economic growth going on. Here are all these kids. They're not starving, but they're not getting enough to eat, and they're not growing as fast as they should. And they're probably, brains are probably not developing. And, you know, I mean, India may have to be taking over the world already, but wait until all these kids get properly nourished, um, you know, really release their brain power. And so this seemed like a first-order question, and, and it was not at all clear to us. And it's still, I mean, we have it's some... It's still unclear, why, it's still that, unclear why, that's why that's happening. But I suspect part of it is that a lot of what people eat is really fuel for hard manual labor right. um, rather than for enjoyment in some sense. So in a country where there is growth, as in India, people are doing much less backbreaking work than once was the case. Okay. So I guess I I would say that this seems to be another thread that runs through your work, which is that people should respect the agency of individuals in poverty-stricken countries or in developing countries, that especially within the aid debate, which we're going to talk about now, um, often their own considerations, the people who are allegedly being targeted to be helped, uh, are not taken into account, are not factored in. Um, do you agree with that general assessment of your well, work? I think that's and a magnificent uh, statement of how I feel. I mean, there's lots of details, but that's the fundamental thing, that I think people's agency is being denied by these things, and they're not being treated as full, full by, human by Specifically by the way that foreign aid to poor countries works now. I think a lot of foreign aid is there for us rather than for them. And if they don't want it, that wouldn't stop us from doing it. And if we discovered it was hurting them it wouldn't stop us from doing it either. But it would still not stop us from doing it. It would not stop us from doing it because we think something has to be done and somehow we know best. Um, And I find that very, very troubling. I also find it very troubling that there's just this huge income differential. I mean, it's all from rich people doing things to poor people. 
sort of idea, and poor people are not really being fully consulted. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. And is if, as I've argued, that giving very large sums of money to governments who are already getting very large shares of their budgets from foreign sources, it actually does worse because it undermines the agencies of the, the agency of the citizens of these countries um, because it makes their government less responsive to them because the government can stay in power and do whatever it has to do, funded entirely by... So effectively, according to this line of thinking, isn't entirely responsible for propping up these corrupt governments but contributes to that while making it harder for the citizens of those same poor countries to change the way their government operates. Absolutely. But that's not the only effect. I mean, you know, PEPFAR, for instance, in the United States. Sorry, what? PEPFAR was the president's emergency plan for AIDS and whatever it is, research or something? Anyway. But, I mean, it was the George Bush set it up to spend money in Africa to do something about AIDS. And, you know, it spent a tremendous amount of money on antiretroviral therapies in African countries, and there's a lot of people alive who would otherwise have been dead. And that's a huge moral gain. I mean, and I'd be the last person in the world to say that saving people's lives is, is, is really a bad thing. I think it's just when you think through these things, you have to seriously think about these other effects we've been talking about. And those may offset in some cases. They may not offset. I, I don't think every aid project is bad. Um, or that we should stop every single okay. thing. So it's a f- fairly nuanced argument. Then there are some cases where aid can help, but it has to be targeted towards healthcare. Is that is that no, a fair I'm statement? Not sure, that's right. I think even if you target it towards healthcare, it may change the balance of it. But I think there's still the problem that you know if you run the healthcare system of Mali or something, then the Malians are never going to develop a healthcare system, and there's generations of infants and children who are never going to get looked after properly as a result. So somehow you have to take that into account. I don't think it's easy. But just let me clarify one thing, too. I think there's lots of ways of giving aid which do not have these problems. And so I'm not against aid. Okay. I'm against... Uh, Jagdish Bhagwati, I think, had this phrase, which is he said he's for aid for Africa, but he's against aid in Africa. And for me, that's a very good distinction. We could spend a lot of money here um, on fundamental research into diseases, better understanding of malaria, better understanding of diseases that don't hurt Americans. Right. Um, and so, science, so in other words, what, you said that you, there were some ways of giving aid that you would support. One of them is in-country research, but here, in other words, into yeah. scientific advances that would help countries over there, but not the direct approach of sending money through foreign right. governments. We could also, I think the World Bank would be better as a giant consulting house like McKinsey or Gallup or something, you know, that actually did negotiation services for developing countries. So, for instance, if the U.S. is doing a trade deal with some small country, Mm. you know, maybe the World Bank could bring some expertise to stack up against the American pharmaceutical lawyers or whoever is there on the other side of this. And once again, that doesn't do any internal corruption. Um, but what it does is level the playing field a little bit. American foods, um, agricultural subsidies are another example of okay. something where we're hurting people. So these things would cost us money. So, you know, we are spending money to help poor people, right. which I think is, you know, a moral requirement. Um, but I don't think we should do it in ways that hurt them. Sure. 
So those those two ideas um, sound like they would have long term payoffs. Is there something that foreign countries can do about immediately alleviating poverty in other countries that would not have the kinds of unintended consequences or perverse consequences rather that you just mentioned? I think it's hard. Uh, I mean, and I don't have any particular okay. thing. One of the things that's been troubling me in what I've read, and it's not in The Great Escape because I just didn't want to commit myself to go that far, is if you read the record of humanitarian relief, which sounds like how could anyone object to humanitarian relief? There's been an earthquake or there's been, you know, there's a bunch of people who've been displaced by war or there's been a tsunami. But the track record of those things is among the worst of all the aid projects. And especially, but not exclusively in times of war. And, you know, that's essentially because if you try to help people in a war zone, the guys who are waging war are going to demand a tribute in order to let you help those people. And that will prolong the war. And that's happened over and over and over again. Um, And so I don't know what you do in that situation. I mean, you know, it's true that, you know, the, the... the Ur conflict of this, which many Brits of my age will remember, is the Biafran War, which was the first time that starving children were put on television. Sorry, which war? This was when Biafra or Biafra is, was a rebel pop province of Nigeria. Okay. Um, and I think this was in 1968. Um, and there was a civil war went on between this rebel. And many, many people were displaced and died. Sure. I think Oxfam, it was Oxfam that put the pictures of the starving children on British television. And it was the first one of these things where there was a mass public outpouring of school children and churches and everyone who gave money to help the starving Biafrans, sure. you know. And then it turns out that some of the planes that were flying into Biafra had guns as well as food. Sure. And the plane. I, I, I know you're skeptical of this um, because I've seen it in one of your recent columns. Uh, but there is a kind of flourishing research going on right now about unconditional cash transfers, yes. things that target people in those countries directly. In other words, the money right. doesn't go through the government. Um, it seems to have pretty positive effects so far. Uh, do you want to talk about why you're, you yourself are a bit skeptical? I haven't done the work to go through those in detail, but I could tell you what I'd be looking for. Um, the, the 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 effects the positive effects I've seen are essentially first round effects you know which is if you give money to people the people are better off and you know th- that's a little trivial and a lot of them do better than that but imagine what would happen if you gave very large sums of money to ordinary people in a country that's being run by a dictator it's all going to finish up in the pockets of the dictator in the end. And as far as I can see, none of these studies even consider that possibilities. I mean, one of the an, an analogies... The second-order effect, you mean, that in the long term, this will have... It might not be so long-term if you start doing it on a large enough scale. You know, because the the bad guys will be attracted to whatever cash flow is important enough. You know, So you can do a small-scale experiment, and it has great effects on people. And the dictator says, ooh, it would be very much in my interest to let this experiment go ahead and let them think it's going to work. And then you know, when it rolls out, I can come along and do it. And one of the analogies I give is you, know, you have a neighbor who moves in, and you discover he's some crazy cult member who's doing terrible things to his wife, using his wife and children as slaves. And the wife is really poor, and the kids are really poor, and you'd really like to help them. 
right? Well, you go and give money to them, it's not going to do any good at all because they're basically completely under control of the evil presence in their household. So that's the sort of model you want to have in mind. And if you're trying to bypass a government that we all disapprove of by giving money to the people, if that government is really in control, that ain't going to work. Right. I mean, it's just a simple equilibrium sort of argument. Okay. Um, it sounds like then uh, that you're skeptical that this can scale up, that it might have a decent first-run effect, that it could even help people that are targeted by the money, but that in the long term it's not going to work out so well, especially if you do it at a big enough scale. That that sounds like a fair summary of your belief. There are serious risks. and I'm not, I mean, you know, if the government is in favor of helping their people, you don't need to give the money to the people. You can give it to the government. If the government is nailing their people to the floor then giving it to the people is not going to help because it'll all finish up in the bank accounts okay. of, of the rich guy. Incidentally, I sometimes misunderstood on this, but this is not, and this is all about giving money from the outside to a country. It doesn't apply to like in Mexico where Oportunidad is or whatever it was. You know, the, the Mexican government within a functioning democracy decides to give money to its own people then that's none of these considerations come Got it. Into, into account. So sometimes people think I'm against any sort of welfare, and I've been asked that many times. Not the case. In the last, and it's just not true. I mean, if it's domestic and it's negotiated and it's within a functioning democracy, and also the, the price committee used the word welfare on the very short citation, and okay. people have said to me, you know, how do I get people, how do we get people off welfare? And that's not what I'm okay. working on. Hey listeners, it's Cardiff speaking to you directly. And just a reminder that you can find the entirety of our 90-minute chat with Angus on our sibling podcast, Alpha Chatterbox. We think you should check it out. In the next segment, madness, chaos in the pharmaceutical sector. I'm joined by David Crow, who covers healthcare in the U.S. David, madness, chaos, is that an accurate description of what's happening this week? Sums up my life at the moment. <laughs> All right, so uh, the first story Allergan and Pfizer, a potential deal there. We don't know what's going to happen yet. What would be the significance of it? I mean, uh, the significance of it is twofold, I suppose. One, uh, it would create the world's largest drug maker, a market cap in excess of $300 billion, some saying near $400 billion once you sort of build in the premium for, for Allergan. Right. What's the biggest one right now? Uh, it's Johnson & Johnson, right. about $277 billion or okay. thereabouts, I, I think. And the second is that it would allow Pfizer to follow through on its long-held dream of completing a tax inversion. Everyone thinks of Allergan, the maker of Botox, as a U.S. company, but actually it's domiciled in Ireland. And, and by buying the company, uh, Pfizer could move its tax base to Ireland and slash the amount of corporation tax it pays. Yeah, so I, I have essentially been left in the dust by M&A in the pharma sector and in healthcare generally. And I guess I'm trying to work out why the activity there has been so frantic. And it seems like there are a few reasons. Um, and in this case, maybe the tax inversion reason is the one that dominates. But, I mean, this is also partly a macro story. It's, I think, uh, a stock market story, right, where the market's better than it was in prior years. So you can pay more money using shares of your own company. Um, but I guess my question is whether or not there is something inherent to the healthcare sector or to the pharma sector that makes it a kind of naturally acquisitive uh, sector? What do you think? I think that um, a lot of the larger pharmaceutical companies are naturally acquisitive. Um, in in sort of the last decade, there were lots of big cuts to R&D to sort of, su sort of uh, you know, support um, ever-growing earnings. 
Um, and, and that left a big hole in the pipelines. What do you do when you've got a hole in, in drug the pipeline? In, in the pipeline of drugs that you're about to, right. or that you hope to bring to market. If you're not paying money to unearth new molecules, you're not discovering new drugs, and you need to fill that pipeline back up, what do you do? You go out and you buy someone, often a smaller company, that has been doing that work. Also, oh, the patents run out of time. The patents run out, yeah, but it mean, uh, you means you need to do yeah, If you don't have any time. of your own drugs, you've got to go buy it from somebody else. Exactly. Okay, yeah. so there's a few, different, uh, a few different variables that contribute to it. Let's now turn to uh, a company that seems to only do acquisitive stuff and doesn't do anything else, uh, Valiant. It's been such an intense like, few months for Valiant. Um, first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit of uh, the background of the company and then bring us forward to what's been happening in the last couple of weeks. So Valiant has been a sort of darling of, of the stock market, if you like, in, in pharmaceuticals. Um, uh, for a while, by the way. For right? a long while. I mean, going back to about 2013, I think it's been seen as a sort of runaway uh, success story run by this guy called Mike Pearson, a former McKinsey consultant, very smart guy. Um, and his uh, whole mantra really has been that big pharma doesn't work. Uh, big companies don't do R&D very well. The companies that do do R&D effectively are small, nimble, biotechs often uh, based on, on the, uh, the east or west coast in San Francisco or, or Massachusetts. And that really big pharma should be in the business of buying proven late stage assets that are either on the market or about to go mar right. to market, sacking all the scientists because the drug has been discovered now, so you don't need them anymore. Um, raising the prices and marketing them very aggressively. And it's been a, a strategy that has, has uh, done very well for his shareholders until uh, the wheels until the started coming off the bus. There's something, I mean, before we even talk about what happened in the last couple of weeks, or actually really in the last couple of months, I would just note that there seems something a little distasteful about this business model, right, where the entire goal is just to buy what's already there and to get rid of uh, these kind of siloed pockets of innovation, of R&D spending, slash cost, boost the earnings of the stuff you already have. Uh, it seems like if every big pharmaceutical company were to pursue that strategy, that it would just lead to a lot less innovative drugs coming out. It would be bad for humanity if that's not too much of a hyperbolic stretch. He would argue, and I'll pass his, his sort of response to that, that when he sacks those scientists, they go and work for smaller companies where they're incentivized with uh, you know, equity-based uh, uh, payments and so on, pay packets, um, to, to really unearth new drugs rather than being part of this monolithic organization. And that actually, that's good for the ecosystem, I hate that word, but but that's right. that's what what people it takes the use. exact opposite tack. It's good to fire people because then they're forced to go out and, by necessity, come up with new stuff. That's his argument. That's his argument. Yeah, and and that and that actually the 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 sort of innovation at that end of of the market, those smaller biotech companies, you know, hand to mouth, uh, is is much better than 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 the sort of wallowing around in all the money that big pharma has sort of swilling around. So he essentially thinks that big pharmaceutical companies uh, are inherently, um, they inherently trend towards becoming bloated and wasteful. Yeah, I mean, he always points to the tech sector as, as an example of this, you know. I mean, Microsoft's had a bit of a, a, a you know, renaissance of late, but, you know, didn't uh, and wasn't around for, for many of the big 
um, developments uh, of recent years, you know, didn't do a good social network, didn't get anywhere in digital music, and so on. Um, and he says farmers the same, you know, the small guys are the ones that come up with the new innovative products, and the big guys are the ones that have got the reach, the distribution, the ability to do sales and marketing and so on. And, and that should be the sort of sure. uh, way the Because there are a few examples of big tech companies that, in fact, do come up with tremendous new innovations. Google and Apple uh, come to mind. But anyways, we'll leave that aside for now. That's his argument, and that's one part of the issue, right? Uh, so anyways, you said that this seemed to work for a while. Uh, stock was going through the roof. Um, and then all of a sudden, the wheel started to get a little wobbly, uh, not just a couple of weeks ago, but I think it started a couple of months ago. Uh, what a couple happened? of months ago, we, I've been on, on your show before talking about uh, pricing, uh, drug pricing, Hillary Clinton uh, pledging to crack down on that if elected as, as U.S. president. And uh, Valiant seen as one of the big uh, losers in any crackdown because of this policy of buying up uh, drugs and, 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 and jacking up the prices. Um, and uh, so already it was under pressure. Um, and then uh, it, the last thing it needed was anything else. But there was a sort of scandal that broke uh, around its use of what's known as a specialty pharmacy. Um, and to put it simply, what a specialty pharmacy really does is employs very aggressive sales techniques to get around the checks and balances in the U.S. healthcare system that are there to dampen drug price inflation. Um, so it exploits loopholes, essentially. It exploits loopholes. It, it, it tries as to... As legally sort of, as possible, <laughs> we would hope. We, we hope. I mean, and, and there have been lots of questions about um, Philidor, which is its uh, specialty pharmacy. Uh, and then last week, um, short sellers claimed that Philidor um, was at the center of a massive accounting fraud to boost Valiant's revenues. And they pointed to various inconsistencies um, in, in how the company does things. Uh, Valiant has really come out fighting on, on that point and I think has assuaged a lot of concerns that uh, there isn't a big uh, accounting fraud in, that is boosting its revenues, right. but hasn't really put to bed those concerns that Philidor might be uh, sailing a bit close to the wind um, and that Valiant could ultimately be on the hook for that. What does sailing a bit close to the wind mean? So one thing that, that, that they've been accused of doing is filling prescriptions that people don't need. So you or I go to the doctor and, and we uh, say we need, and for the sake of argument, I'm going to use quite a distasteful product, but this is, this is what one of Valiant's top-selling products, a, a toenail fungus cream. Uh, so we get the toenail fungus cream, we use it, maybe our uh, infection goes away, um, but um, Valiant will keep on sending you, or I should say Philidor, will keep on sending you that refill of that cream until you tell it to stop now one of the things that they do is they waive the copay so you or i don't actually pay anything the only person that's billed is our insurance company so we don't have an incentive to cancel it we're just getting more and more of this cream all the time we don't need it and and yet united health or cigna or whoever pays for pays for that drug ends up paying for it. That's just one example of the aggressive techniques they, sure. they might be can, using. Can you elaborate a little bit on the relationship between Valiant and Philidor? Because it's used this kind of peculiar structure whereby it has an option to buy the company for $0, but it doesn't outright own the company, and yet it has been accused of booking some of Philidor's earnings on its own books? I mean, how does this work? Okay, well, there's a couple of, of different issues there. One okay. is that it has been consolidating uh, the revenues of 
Philidor and indeed a, a big network of regional pharmacies that Philidor has ties to into its own uh, financial reports. Now, it claims, uh, and, and uh, other tax experts that I've spoken to have, have backed it up, frankly, that, that when it has that degree of control over a company, it has to start consolidating uh, it, its revenues into its financial reports. That's one part. However, there is this very unusual structure um, where Valiant purchased an option to buy Philidor for $133 million, and that option price is zero. So it looks like an acquisition, and it sounds like an acquisition, but for some reason, they have not actually taken over the company. And one of the fears that investors have is, was this a clever structure to own this company without being on the hook if there are any legal problems further down the line, i.e. did Valiant try to sort of build a legal firewall around the company? And, and the big question going forward is whether that's going to be breached or not. It, should it turn out that Philidor has been doing things that, that, that didn't sell close to the wind, but in fact broke the law? Regulators um, or prosecutors taking a look at this, uh, what kind of danger is Valiant in uh, in terms of what happens next? I mean, I think the regulatory uh, inquiries, which often happen in pharma, it's hard to know at what stage they're at. I think the next big problem for Valiant is that doctors um, who are prescribing drugs through these specialty pharmacies get scared. They don't want their fingerprints on, on anything like this, so they stop doing so. Valiant's earnings take a hit. If Valiant's earnings take a hit, then the covenants on its $30 billion of debt start to look a little bit stretched. And then if, if that happens, then a very highly levered company like Valiant falls into difficulties very quickly. It doesn't have to be a fraud. You know, right. it, it could be a reputational threat uh, yeah. that ends up harming the company, exactly. even if nothing comes of the regulatory And, and no one knows how that, how that pans how that out. Happens. Okay. All right. Fascinating. Uh, David Crow, senior U.S. business correspondent. Thanks, man. Thank you. And in the follow-up segment, Amelia Mahasik is back to tell me what I can do better as always. Amelia, how are you? I'm good, Cardiff. You've had an interesting week. Indeed, indeed. Last week, lots of stuff on the show. Uh, what stood out to you? So I was, I'm very intrigued about the Bernanke memoirs. And okay. I've heard Bernanke speak about his book himself uh, this week, which I and I'm, it's fascinating. He's, he's a very thoughtful man. But I couldn't tell from our own discussion whether... My, my discussion with Sam, you mean. With Sam Fleming about the Bernanke memoirs just released, Courage to Act, right. I think it's called, whether it was readable and whether Sam liked the book, actually, you know, enjoyed reading it. And then it made me think that we discuss people's books, memoirs, works quite often. Maybe we should come up for, with a rating system. A rating system. Yeah, it's a good point, too, because we, we spoke a lot about the merits of the arguments in the book. We mm. didn't really talk that much about the aesthetic you know, quality of the book. Sam did give it a thumbs up, but yeah, we did speak more about the economics, right? Because this is an economics podcast, but it's actually a good point. People like hearing whether or not something can actually be easily absorbed, digested, whether it's readable. Uh, it's a good point. And since I love reading and so do you, maybe we should do more of that. Maybe you could do a weekly recommendation of what you've read. Good idea. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> that would put a lot idea. of pressure on me because then, then I need to actually make sure that I read at least one economics book a week. But yeah, that's a good idea. So uh, what would it be this week? So this week I'm actually reading a history book about Cuba since I'm going on sabbatical soon. And it is called Cuba, A History by Hugh Thomas. It's pretty awesome. 
Sounds you know. perfect. Good yes. for our varied <laughs> diet. Yes, indeed. What else stood out? Uh, what else stood out? Um, the Canadian story continues to be really interesting. I think we should return to that after Trudeau appoints his cabinet. He's yeah. promised half women, uh, as, as you know, really? subject close to my heart. Okay. Um, he has. Uh, he, he's got a lot of MPs to fit into his cabinet because more of them were elected than he expected. So I think that will provide fodder for next week. So I'm, I'm, I thought we did a good job of keeping on the boil in the Canada. Yeah, we should do that, especially Sorry. since we have this Canadian contingent here at the FT in New York. No sense not taking advantage of that. Also, it's, uh, we have quite a lot of uh, readers there, certainly. I don't know about listeners. Hopefully we have some listeners as well. It's uh, our second biggest region on this side of the world. Okay. Amelia Mahasek, always a pleasure. Thank you, Carla. <laughs> And that's the end of today's show. You can call us at 917-551-5012 or email us at alphachat at ft.com. And you can find me on Twitter directly at Cardiff Garcia. Let us know what we can do better and what you'd like us to do next. Thanks again for listening. Amy Keene keeps the trains running here. And in addition to editing and producing this podcast this week while we were on the road, she also made sure that Alpha Chat didn't miss any of them. We'd be lost without you, Amy. Literally, I'd be stuck in Rhode Island or something. Thanks to our listeners, and we'll be back with another Alpha Chat next week. Take care. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.